title of the talk tonight is Your Willingness to Suffer. So you, you may dispute the, um, the title. You're saying, well, not me. I'm not willing to. Uh, suffering may be happening, but I, I'm, not, I'm not buying the idea that I'm willing to do that. Um, but I'd suggest that if we haven't deeply investigated the cause of our suffering, um, we will continue to suffer. We may ignore what we know might be causing our suffering, or we might just refuse to poke around a little bit and see what we may not know that is causing our suffering. Either way works, right? But the suggestion that suffering is somehow our responsibility. So, uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj had a very um, compelling um, quote, and he said that the perpetuation of suffering is based on our indifference to our own suffering. The indifference to our own suffering. However, that might be framed in our mind, like, you know, well, it's not so bad, you know, sort of like what life is, and you know, you know, I shouldn't expect more, or maybe I don't deserve to feel happy or contented, or maybe God doesn't like me, or maybe um, you know, this is my punishment for some past karma, or um maybe I'm just not worth it, or who knows? <laughs> you know, we can come up with any kind of belief to sort of justify um, the continuation of our own suffering. So I'd like to just make a, a clarification um, between pain and suffering. I know many of you have heard me talk about this before, so I'll just be very brief about it. Pain in this life um, is... Uh, frequently unavoidable. You know, we stub our toe, it hurts. We get a disease, we don't feel well. Um, we get aged. Um, things don't work like they used to. Um, you know, the body can experience severe pain if it's injured. Um, there's, there's plenty of opportunity for pain. Suffering is something else. Suffering is what we tell ourselves about the pain. In other words, the story that goes on in our head about, you know, I don't deserve this. Why me? Poor me. Things, bad things are always happening to me. Whatever, whatever the storyline goes. And often what we tell ourselves about the hurt is more painful than the hurt itself. And this is especially true when we're talking about psychological Right. You know, we can feel like, well, you know, so-and-so said something about me, you know, and it and it hurt me. They shouldn't have said that or that wasn't right. You know, so these um, these are conclusions in our own head about what 
what's happening. Someone else caused my internal feelings to change by their action. And um, I'd suggest that that's never true. No one else has ever caused you to get hurt or to get angry. So before you ask me what planet I'm on, um, let me explain by what I mean by that. Um, so let's just take this, hmm, let's say, propensity to blame others. So-and-so made me do it. So-and-so made me angry. You know, what they did was um, cause me to feel hurt, right? No, they just did whatever they did for whatever reason that they did it or just out of their own unconsciousness, um, but certainly out of their own conditioning, their own perspective, their own understanding or misunderstanding, whatever was said or whatever was done came out of their experience in this lifetime up until that moment. And whatever was said or done was a product of, of all of that. You have no control over that. <laughs> you know, people will say what, what they say. They will do what they do. Sometimes you'll like it. Sometimes you won't. But you have no control over whatever another person may say or do. What you do have control over is what your reaction to that is. So... Let's just slow that process way down. Let's, let's just say someone says something rude. And so they say something. You have no control over that. But what, what reaches your organism is just the, the sound waves of their voice, right? It's the eardrum vibrates that. So far, no problem, right? Just a mechanical, mechanical thing. You know, it's like when, let's say when I was an infant, um, you know, if someone was upset because of the um, condition of my diaper at the moment, um, you know, they might say something, you know, some expression of annoyance, let's say. And, uh, you know, if they said in a loud sort of loud voice, I might be alarmed by that. Um, they say that babies are only afraid of two things. One is uh, loud noises and the other is being dropped. So all the other things that we're afraid of, we've learned since then. <laughs> but in, at that time when we don't know the words yet, um, you know, we don't, we might be frightened by a, a loud, uh, a loud voice, but we don't, we don't, go to the internal um, reaction. You know, we don't feel um, guilty or shamed or remorseful, you know, or hateful towards the person. You know, we don't feel any of that because we don't have the framework to feel that. So all of those reactions are learned sometime later in life. So going back to our example, you know, our eardrums are fluttering and they send a signal to our brain so far, it's just a mechanical response. In the brain, um, 
the brain sort of reconstitutes these biochemical signals and compares them to what um, words that we've heard before, the meanings of them, um, you know, reactions that we've um, become patterned by in the past. Um, and in many ways, that reaction is can be quite automatic. You know, someone pushes our buttons in a certain way and the reaction is there. So that's that's all conditioned behavior that's happening. Um, but we can notice that it's all um, th that reaction is happening entirely within this organism, right? We say, well, no, no, the other person made me do it. No, that was just the triggering stimulation, right? But the, the reaction happens entirely within our own head. So, and that reaction may be so conditioned that we can't just ignore it, you know, just stop it in its tracks. Um, but what we can do is uh, really investigate it, really be willing to look at that clearly, you know, those reactions which cause us to suffer or which cause us to act in certain ways that cause other people to suffer, and really look at that um, underlying um, belief that holds that conditioning in place. And what I mean by that, there might be a belief uh, that, um, well, people should treat each other nicely, you know, or I don't, uh, I don't deserve that, you know, I'm, I'm a good person and they should like me, whatever the storyline is. But it's a, a belief that holds, um, that justifies our reaction and um, holds it in place. Right? And so, you know, what, what many of us do is, is just, you know, not look at that mechanism of the, you know, what effect that triggering stimulation has in our conditioning. We just blame it on the other person. He made me do it, you know. <laughs> you know, if she hadn't said that, I wouldn't be angry. No, no. The other person did whatever they do. Right? You made you made yourself angry by insisting that that shouldn't happen. They shouldn't be that way. It wasn't right. So here we're talking about blame, you know, where, you know, we're trying to um, export blame to the other person. The, the downside of that is that um, if we believe that, then our contentment is always in the hands of the other person. And as we hopefully all know by now, um, you know, other people do surprising things sometimes or sometimes things that we don't like. And so if our happiness is, if we've um, uh, assigned our happiness uh, to, to, to their control, then, you know, we're vulnerable. And we feel that. That's what anxiety is about. We never know what the other person might say or do. But if we can see that, you know, the conditioned reaction, there might be a surge within us. But if we see, um, the more we 
see the mechanism of that, the less effect it has on um, actually coming out as, as behavior or something that we say. We can just see, well, you know, okay, that's the conditioned reaction, but I know that it's not actually fundamentally true um, that, um, you know, I, I just choose not to believe that thought. We're not trying to make the thought go away, We're not opposed to the thought arising. The important thing is to see that it's not actually true. It's never the other person. The other person in your whole life, the other person has never hurt you. I'm not talking physically. Never hurt you. Never made you angry. We do that to ourselves. Do When we believe the thought that they shouldn't have done that, that wasn't right, we suffer. You see, it's just a conditioned reaction not to be believed, sort of loses its momentum. Okay, another category of things that can make us suffer is uh, regret. Regret is about the past, of course. You know, something that might have happened five minutes ago or five years ago, maybe even 50 years ago, who knows. But it's not happening now. If it's still causing us to suffer, the only reason it's still causing us to suffer is because we're reloading it into current memory. Which we do ourselves, right? <laughs> and why do we do why do we do that? Because we we feel like it shouldn't have happened, right? I know what should have happened and that wasn't it. Or I know what I should have done and I did something else and I can never go back and undo it. That's true. But it's also not happening now, except to the extent that we replay it in our mind. So if there's something from the past that still has some juice to us, still causes us to suffer, um, there are two things we can do, and really only two things. One is to really look at it and see if there's something still to be learned from it. You know. And we can only do that if we're not looking at it um, judgmentally. We're not looking at it, trying to convince that we were really right all along or that, you know, whatever our story, we were really terrible people and that's, we'll never be other than that. Whatever the storyline is, just look at it objectively. Is there anything more that we can learn about our own behavior I'm not talking about anybody else's behavior, just about our own behavior, our own response, our own misunderstanding. Is there any more to, to be learned there? Maybe, maybe not. If there is, great. If there's not, we're done with it. The other thing that we can do is, is there anything in this moment, this current moment, um, that requires our action? You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just writing a, uh, you know, handwritten note of um, apology, or maybe it's just um, in the privacy of our own mind, uh, genuinely, you know, forgiving 
someone else for their action years ago. Or maybe our parents for our upbringing or whatever. Right? So it's important when we're when we're looking at past events to recognize that however we acted or however the other person acted um, uh, can only be to the level of their understanding. You know, we can't reasonably expect that we should have acted at a higher level than our understanding at the time. Right? That would be unreasonable. Right? I mean, the highest highest standard that we could hold ourselves to is based on you know how we understood life and ourselves and um, at, at at the time that we have this regretful memory, you know, was I acting in good conscience? Was I doing the best I can? Um, you know, and e even if from the perspective of today, looking back, of course we'd do something different. Hopefully we'd do something different. If, if we said, no, I'd still do the exact same thing again, you know, that just means we didn't really learn much from whatever difficult situation arose. But if we look back with, let's say, a reasonable degree of regret, you know, like, yeah, that was, uh, that was me acting like a jerk. And at the time, um, I thought I was justified. Now I can see I was mistaken. Good, right? Good. You're not going to undo the circumstance, but um, I see all of that as the way, just the way we learn, you know. If we, if we don't look back on past actions that we've done, with some degree of remorse, you know, either we weren't trying very hard or we haven't learned anything in the meantime, you know, so we can just see, yeah, um, I can see now, you know, if something similar arises now, of course I would do differently, but you know, we have to be compassionate about what we, what we understood at the time and not have an expectation that we, we should have acted above our, our pay grade at the time. You know, we could just do what we knew how to do with the conditioning that was in place at the time. Okay, so we can also look at um, expectations, whereas regrets are about the past, expectations are about the future. Things that aren't happening now, but we expect them to, not only hope that they do, we sort of, there's a, a little bit of an element of, no, I really expect that this is going to happen. The other person is going to behave like I expect them to. And this is, um, it, it, life pays off just often enough that that belief is sort of held in place. I mean, Las Vegas operates by the same principle. You know, the, the slot machines pay off just enough that we keep believing that that's a real possibility, right? So when we impose our expectations on 
some future event. It's like we have some skin in the game. It's like we have almost a demand in some ways um, on life that, you know, we really expect it to turn out this way. And then when it doesn't, we suffer, right? So what, as an example, let's say, you know, just a mild form, you know, you're waiting for um, friend for meet for dinner somewhere um, and you expect them to arrive at seven o'clock and uh, they're 20 minutes late. So they, you know, during those 20 minutes, you felt like your expectations were um, dashed to a certain extent, you know, okay, mild, you're bummed for 20 minutes. Okay, you know, in another example, you might um, have expected your life partner to remain faithful to you always, and they didn't. You're devastated by it. Not saying that's fun or nice, or that you should like it, but I am saying that it has um, a lot to do with trust, right? Because what we mean by trust is, I trusted you to do that and you did something else. But what we really mean by that is we expected you to be like this. And when you broke that vow, I suffered. You hurt me. No, actually, the other person just did what they did. It was our expectation that got dashed. We suffered. Not, I'm not saying that we should like those kinds of situations, but, um, you know, we can also perhaps see that, you know, someone else's behavior um, in many, many ways is a function of everything that's gone before in this lifetime, same as ours. And people make their own decisions out of their own needs or out of their own misunderstandings or out of their own non-caring, and that happens. What's hurtful is when we expected, expected to the degree that we become devastated when that expectation is crushed. Now, that's an extreme example, but um, we, do, we do this expectation game Often, you know, it's almost a demand on life when it doesn't turn out the way we want it to turn out. Um, we suffer. All right, let's take a um, another example. <laughs> um, that's uh, being right. right. Of course, being right implies that we need somebody else to be wrong. Right. So we enter into this dualism, but. You know, our sense of what's right is founded in what we believe, right? We wouldn't believe something if we thought it was wrong. You know, we believe we believe in our beliefs to be right. You know, I'm right on this one. And, um, and it's sort of self-empowering because it feels like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really right on this. And there's something like that sense of, you know, righteousness to sort of amp up the ego. Right? We have we have an opposing view, an opposing person, an opposing party, and um, and I know it's right. Right? Why? Because it's my opinion. 
the sense of righteousness founded on a belief that I, I know what should be and I know what shouldn't be. And, um, and I, I'm the one to, to, to make that decision. In our own mind, it elevates us to, you know, godlike status. You know, I'm the one that can determine right from wrong. When life goes in a direction that we feel is wrong, then we feel like it's not me that made a mistake. It's life, right? I, I know it's right. And life is life. Maybe got a lot of things right, but this, not this time. And we suffer. When we, when we oppose life, we will lose. Like, like every time, <laughs> we, we'll suffer. So we can just see that sometimes life doesn't go our way. I mean, we, we, we know that mentally, but um, sometimes we act as if we didn't really know that. When I was young, eight or nine or so, I remember living in a neighborhood and um, there was this chant that we would do if somebody, some other kid from, I don't know, another neighborhood um, said something insulting. Uh, chant this chant of uh, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I don't know if you ever did that one, but um, that was popular in our neighborhood. But there's a certain wisdom to that. Like, yeah, sure, you can physically hurt me, but words, um, words don't land. They're just words. They're just vibrations that come my way. So there, there's a certain wisdom in that. You know, for eight or nine-year-olds, it was um, one more movement, the sense of it's not fair. So it's not fair. I mean, fair for who? You know, what may be fair for one person is not fair for someone else. I mean, I've occasionally seen uh, the chickens that we have sort of jump up in the air and catch a butterfly midair and eat it. You know, so from the perspective of the butterfly, it's like, well, that's not fair. Back to the chicken is like, hmm, tasty. So we can see that this question of fairness is a, is a personal perspective. But we feel like, um, no, there should be some sort of universal standard that applies to everybody and um, things are either fair or they're not fair. You know, there's a, there's a standard, there's a, you know, written in the heavens somewhere that things are either fair or not fair. And there's also a sense that it, they should be fair. I mean, this is clearly a, a human imposition on reality. We think that things should work that way. You know, if someone is, I don't know, virtuous, they should be rewarded. And if someone is um, greedy and obnoxious, they should be somehow put down or punished. Yeah. But, you know, we can look around and see that it doesn't always seem to work that way. And we can rail against life and say, well, that's not fair. But, again, when we do that, life doesn't change, but we suffer. Because we, we're sort of holding on to this sense of it's not fair. And I, and I 
know it and um and i can sort of amp up my feelings you know sort of by sort of you know screaming to myself internally it's not fair the way it is so it may not seem fair to you know our human perspective or our personal perspective um but we don't you know, we really don't know the deeper story. I mean, e even in the most superficial way, perhaps the, the virtuous person that had misfortune, maybe there's a little too much pride happening. You know, maybe the greedy person uh, anxious over the possibility of loss of their ill-gotten gains. Who knows? You know, maybe there's some past life spillover. We don't really, you know, we, and we don't need to. We can just see that that life as it is happens. And we can choose how we react to it. If we argue with it, we suffer. Okay, one one last category, and that's uh, self-judgment. You know, so far we've been talking about external stimuli, right? Now, now we're talking about what we do within ourselves, where we play both roles, actually. You know, we're the um, defendant and the judge. You know, we're the higher self and the little me. We think that we're playing grown up by, you know, sort of holding holding the line, holding the standard for ourselves, and pointing the finger at the at the little me, <laughs> you know, the guilty one, the unworthy one, that one. But I'm, you know, I'm the adult in the room, and I know how that that little me character should be acting, right? Anybody ever feel that? Play that one? How painful that is? But it's just two thoughts, right? One thought playing the higher self, one thought playing the victimized little me, the unworthy one. Just two thoughts. Both believed. We believed that the higher self is justified criticizing this, and the little me feels justified in feeling unworthy, you know, not good enough. Just two, two opposing thoughts. The only thing that holds it in place is our belief in it. That's it. The, thought, the thoughts may still arise. I mean, they've got a certain momentum, decades worth of patterned thinking. So they're not going to disappear overnight. But what we can do is see when those kind of thoughts arise that cause us to suffer, you know, to question our beingness, our right to be here. We can just look at that, see if they're really true or not. See the mechanism that holds that pattern in place. It, it does no good at all to try to forcibly push those thoughts out of existence. They have too much uh, history. They'll, they'll come back. You know, they'll come back when we're tired or bummed out about something. Or... So we can't forcibly eject them from our mind. To do that would give them a reality that they don't deserve. They're just conditioned patterns, just neurological conditioned patterns. What we can see is, yeah, 
That's that's how this particular body mind was patterned, but it's it's just simply not true, not really true. Because what's actually true, deeper level, is that or is this awareness that's aware of all of these mental battles, all of these self-judgments, these self-assessments that convince us that we're worthy, unworthy, belong here or don't, are lovable or not, just patterned beliefs. But from the point of view of awareness, the awareness is actually untouched by any of that. It's just aware of it. It's aware of our, you know, self-enhancing thoughts, and it's aware of our, you know, dismal thoughts about ourselves. On whatever whatever the mind is producing at the moment, uh, the awareness is. Um, recognizes it, notices it. And when we are looking from the perspective of awareness and see this mental activity um, as just conditioned sort of free running of the of the brain, um, it it takes takes away its power. We don't have to try to eject the thoughts just seeing that they're not actually true. There may be some relative truth to it, but not not anything of any significance. What is significance is that formless, spacious immensity that we truly are is present for all that. That's what's significant. That's what our essential being is. And when we can look back at the conditioned behavior from that perspective, often, as often as it takes for a prolonged period, maybe years, right? When we can do that, it's the the stickiness of that conditioned behavior just begins to drop away gradually. We don't have to try to make it do it. We just see it, be willing to see it. When we're unwilling to investigate our suffering, it perpetuates, right? Because we haven't gotten to the cause of it. When we suspect a cause, know how it causes us to suffer, and refuse to look at it, it perpetuates our suffering. So the question is, do we deal with it once for all, or do we let it haunt us for the rest of our life? It's like going to the dentist. You have a toothache. You can go to the dentist, get it fixed. Not fun, but it's done and over with in a relatively short time. Or you can go day after day with this ever-present possibility of pain forever, right? Until we're willing to look. So going back to Nisargadatta's quote, um, the indifference to our own suffering is what perpetuates it. The indifference to our own suffering 
So it's really our willingness to look, look at what we suspect is there, look at it is that causes us to suffer, and to see the suffering not as the enemy. The suffering is actually the pointer. The suffering is actually in service to us when we really see it. Because it's it's revealing something that we're believing that's not quite true. And that belief is causing us to suffer. It's like when you stub your toe, your toe hurts. That That's actually a good thing. If you didn't feel it, you might go on damaging your foot forever. But the fact that we feel that pain draws our attention to it, like, oh, there's an issue here. I need to pay attention. And psychological suffering is the same way. It's always a pointer. It's always a pointer towards something that I am believing. It's not a pointer to how the other person should be different. It's always a pointer back to ourselves. What am I believing that's causing me to suffer in this situation? or in this moment. So we can see when we look at it that way, the suffering is actually our friend in this journey. Without the suffering, I would be bothered to look. <laughs> the point is not just to take some drug to make the suffering go away. The point is really to see the underlying cause that the suffering is pointing to, and to use that as an opportunity. Really see what what beliefs are holding that pattern in place, and there's always a belief underneath there. <laughs> we might think, no, it's just a feeling. Mm. There's a belief holding it in there. So that's really the opportunity, and that's actually the good news. The good news is that this suffering that many of us feel in this lifetime um, is resolvable. We're not condemned to suffering our entire life. We, like I said at the beginning, we may feel physical pain. Sure, that's part of this life, part of this body. But suffering, suffering is optional. It may take some work to really see the truth in that, but that there is an exit. There is a way through the suffering, but it's through the suffering, not around it and not ignoring it. It's really being willing to see without judgment, to remain present for that mechanism to see how those believed thoughts play out and, um, and pay attention 